Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Hey, Noah. Have you been getting unseasonably warm weather up there? No, we've been getting unseasonably cold. Well, yeah, I guess so. I guess it's warmer than I would probably expect it to be for, for November, hence the definition of unseasonably warm. But it's cold. I have to get my jacket on. And It was uh, 50 degrees today. What was the average? What, what was the coldest it got in Canada before you moved? Uh, in my home city, it got down to minus forty-two a couple of years ago. Okay, all right. So you're you know what to expect, more or less. Yeah, I've been. It's been cold. It was one of those like, hey, don't go outside, or your lungs will freeze if you're out there too long. Yeah, I, I question sometimes. I'm like, why do I live where the air hurts my face? And then I see some of the craziness that happens in bigger cities. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's why I live where the air hurts my face. Our <laughs> our our first email comes in from Baku. Baku writes in and says, hello, Noah and Steve and the listeners. In the last episode, the interview with Matthew Miller of Fedora was really interesting. My personal opinion towards Fedora distribution is kind of mixed. I think that for a distro, it's backed by a big corporation and follows the fixed point release model. Fedora is incredibly unstable, unpolished, and at times buggier than an evening in Louisiana. In contrast to Fedora, there's OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. OpenSUSE is backed by a big entity just like Fedora. But unlike Fedora, Tumbleweed is a rolling release distro, incredibly stable and very polished. Linus Sebastian, in his YouTube channel, Linus Tech Tips, are like those reality shows. There's nothing real there. From an overly expressive video thumbnails to a clickbaity video titles, the content of the video, everything is carefully scripted and rehearsed. As Frank Sinatra once sang, there's no business like show business. I have a challenge for you and Steve, Noah. I want you guys to run OpenSUSE Tumbleweed for a month, and after a month, I'd like you to compare your experiences with that of Fedora. What do you guys say? Come on, it'll be great fun for you guys to agree to this challenge. And he links OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. So I, I want to start here, Steve. First of all, do you agree or disagree with the assertion that Fedora is unstable, unpolished, and buggier than an evening in Louisiana? I have not found it to be unstable. Mm. I have definitely experienced paper cuts, but uh, stability, no. I, I've been running Fedora pretty steadily since 20, for sure. And I've never had it just crash. I have had a I have had one upgrade go sideways on me, one in that, you know, last fifteen release cycles. So I wouldn't call that unstable. I, I would echo that. I I Fedora is there there are things to work around with Fedora, but that is true of any distribution, right? There are things that I have to work around in Kubuntu, there are things that I have to work around in Ubuntu proper, and I strongly suspect that there will be things that I will have to work around in uh, OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. So for me, Fedora has been a really great way for me to keep my pulse on 
what Red Hat is doing. And, and honestly, if anything, I would say from Fedora 15, 16, somewhere in there on, I have seen an increase in reliability and, and production to the point that prior to 15, 16, somewhere that era, I would have told you that I wouldn't use Fedora in production unless you're a Linux guy, unless you're somebody who lives, eats, and breathes open source Linux and, and wants to play with those things. Fedora is a leading edge distribution. It's really not designed for general desktop use. And I don't know if that's true today. I would almost say Fedora is one of the ones that you might want to start with, particularly if you have one of the use cases that is highlighted for Fedora. And we're going to get to some articles later on in the show that kind of exemplify this. But to Baku's uh, challenge, the Linux Delta site, which categorizes Linux distributions, and the way that we've built this is to organize distributions not only by their general review, but it has to be reviewed for your use case. Are you using it on the desktop? Are you using it on a server? Are you using it uh, as an IoT distribution? Because all of those are going to have different things that we evaluate. And right now, if you look at desktop most reviewed, and, and this is I, I, I ripped this off straight up from Amazon and B&H. When I go to order professional video equipment or professional audio gear, I go to B&H Photo Video, and I sort by most reviewed. I don't sort by top reviews. I don't care if there's three people that think that this is the best thing ever. I'm far more concerned with the 3,000 people that gave something four and a half stars. And if you sort by desktop distribution – most reviewed, you get 124 reviews with an average score of 4.69 for OpenSUSE, telling me that the majority of the community that is voting on, on LinuxDelta.com says OpenSUSE is one of the best desktop distributions out there. And so my question to you, the community, and you can let us know at live at AskNoahShow.com. You can come over to the Geek Lab at GeekLab.Ninja, and you can post there. You can call into the show and let Steve and I know any which way you want to submit your feedback. I'd be interested in taking it, but what should we be looking for in Tumbleweed, and what specifically are we comparing uh, Fedora to? I suspect that the vast majority of stuff that you do, Steve, and the stuff that I do is going to be we'll install a desktop distribution, we'll set up our email clients and our web browsers, and we'll have the terminal available. What other tools do you use on a daily basis that's going to be drastically different from OpenSUSE Tumbleweed to Fedora or Kubuntu or really any distribution? I don't think that there's much, although I, I will say this. Whenever I move away from the AUR, I always end up missing it because of some obscure thing that I needed to install. Um, like, I'll give you a really easy example. I went to install the Node MCU um, Pi Flasher today, and it's in the AUR. And aside from that, it's not really packaged up, so you'd have to go to GitHub and build it yourself. It's not a big deal. It's a small thing. But it's really nice to have those packages. So I, like you... I'm not sure that the challenge would be much of a challenge. Like I'm either going to run into the weird Wi-Fi issues or I'm not. And for what I do, it doesn't matter whether I grab my Ubuntu laptop, my Arch laptop, or my Fedora laptop. Like largely it really doesn't matter to me um, because it just has to be Linux with a good terminal and a code editor. Yeah, the, I, I find myself really noticing the nuances of desktop environments more than the underlying distribution, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I'm up for giving this a go. I'm up for trying OpenSUSE Tumbleweed. Um, I, I, it's, I, I struggle to, to commit to using it as, as my daily driver for 30 days simply because 
I'm just not at a point in life where I can blow away my production machine and start all over and, and then, and then learn on the fly. Like I kind of have to have, uh, two hats, one hat for getting work done and then the other hat for kind of playing with technology. But I have a machine that I use specifically for exploring technology. I'm down for throwing tumbleweed on there and running it for 30 days and seeing how far I can get with it. And if I run into pain points where they are, I'd also be interested if you're sending in if you're so what we want, we want to know what specifically should we be looking for in tumbleweed and what are we comparing it to? The other thing I would ask, what do you see is the primary use case for open source tumbleweed where who is the user base? How do you describe the, the ideal user for open source tumbleweed where you say that user is not a Fedora user. They're not a Kubuntu user. They're not a, you know, a, a Red Hat user. This is an op- this is an open open source tumbleweed user. Who is that user? Because you know what professional desktop use. If I'm going for that, really, what I'm looking for is support, and that's not in in the U.S. So it seems like kind of a wash to me. But I'm up for giving it a go. So I will uh, I'll load up a box, and uh, maybe Steve, you and I can continue the chat off air and continue to kind of cycle through what that might look like and and what we kind of might hope to accomplish with that. Our second email comes in from Matt. Matt writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I was listening to Jeremy's question in episode 260 and wanted to recommend an application called KeyMapper. Now, as a reminder, we're talking about uh, mapping uh, physical keys that you just want a button on a keyboard to do a thing. So KeyMapper, which he links to their GitHub repository, it detects various input devices on a system and allows a user to define a custom button mapping for them. You can also build multiple button mapping presets for a device and switch between them for different tasks. I found this program when I was looking for a way to remap buttons on my mouse in Fedora 34 Wayland and couldn't use the methods that rely on X. Jeremy might find this helpful too. Thanks, Matt. So, Steve, have you played with KeyMapper at all, or have you heard of it? I haven't played with it, but actually when the user sent this in, I'm like, I have seen people at Red Hat. We have various chats for like home lab and stuff like that. I've seen people talk about this. I, I haven't, because of my, uh, let's say, um, preference for NVIDIA cards, I do not do the Wayland thing except on my laptop. So I really haven't run across um, any need for any Wayland specific tooling. Okay. Well, uh, we'll have the link in the show notes. One of the great things about the Ask Noah Show community is that we don't necessarily always know the answer to your questions, but we're happy to facilitate the exchange of information. So we'll have a link to KeyMapper in the show notes. You can get those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Our third email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in and says, greetings, Noah. I enjoy the show. I don't think I've met, missed an episode in all these years. For your information, podcast.asknoahshow.com uses HTTPS, but asknoahshow.com where Google finds you does not. You can use this Python script below to periodically check if the TLS cert on all of the sites you care about are using HTTPS. I wrote this after I discovered on a Sunday morning that our church site was down. Thanks, Corey. So I really appreciate this for a number of reasons. First of all, I am totally banking this Python script for work because this would be tremendously useful. So I think I've gone over this in the past, but I'll... I'll, uh, I'll We'll, we'll, we'll chug through it here real quick. I can't, I don't have enough good things to say about registerforless.com, r4l.com, and they're the domain register that I've used for years. Uh, it's a Canadian based company and they do a fantastic job. I think the most I've ever waited for a support inquiry is maybe an hour. 
and that's weekends, holidays, anytime I've ever had a problem or an issue, which isn't often I might add, uh, I reach out to the support people and I hear back usually within minutes, but like I say, at most an hour. Their pricing is fantastic. Uh, $13.95 a year, and that gets you free 10 megabyte uh, web host. It gets you free email aliasing. It gets you free privacy protection, which GoDaddy charges you for extra. And then every time you buy a, a domain, you get a point and you can spend those points to buy other domains. So if you do what I do, which is you're buying a bunch of domains for clients and they're, you're billing those back out and they're paying for them, you're saving those points and then you can buy all sorts of fun domains. And so I'm not opposed to buying random domains for fun things. And part of that is because Register for Less gives those to me essentially for free. Now, the problem with their free 10 megabyte hosting is it doesn't support HTTPS, which I, I've gone back and forth with them about a little bit because I feel like with Let's Encrypt, that would not be a difficult thing to add. But alas, it's just not a feature. So when we launched Ask Noah Show in 2017, I asked our web guy to design a dashboard for Ask Noah so that people had a one-stop reference to get all of the resources for the show. Here's where you download the show. Here's how you stream the show. Here's the calendar for the show. Here's where the videos are on YouTube and all of those kinds of things. It was essentially a glorified bookmarks page. It really wasn't designed to store any data. It doesn't collect any data. Um, there's really no interactions. It's, it's literally just a big link dump. It's a pretty link dump, but that's what it is. It's a link dump. So all that to be said, uh, we are changing hosting providers at the end of the year. In fact, we're going to get into that a little bit more as the episode rolls on this hour. But one of the things that we're going to do is uh, we'll be putting all of these things in containers. And as I become more comfortable with that process, uh, we will roll them all out with Let's Encrypt and, and the whole nine yards. So expect to have that resolved by the beginning of 2022. Um, and don't worry if you're going to asknoahshow.com. There's no, there's no information for anybody to intercept. And if the only information that they would get are the public links that I want everyone to have anyway. So just... Think of it as doing me a personal favor if somebody snoops on your traffic and realizes that they can download the show at podcast.asknoahshow.com or they can stream it at asknoahshow.com. It, it just helps promote the show. Think of it like that. Um, I, we, have a, uh, we have another email. This email comes in from Kevin. Uh, Kevin writes in and says, Noah and Steve, love the show. Been a listener since day one. You had a question from another listener in episode 257 about inventory and help desk systems. It got me thinking about how we manage our own environment, and unfortunately, we do use a lot of proprietary systems. The Netbox project is mature and actively maintained with a great community, spun off from the engineering team at DigitalOcean. It's Apache 2.0 license, and the web UI is excellent. The API is well-documented. We use Netbox as an IP address source of truth for our inventory list that we integrate with all sorts of proprietary systems, including Helpdesk, with no trouble. NetDesk is great for network device inventory and the first stop for device and setup network documentation. We enter all the network devices inside of NetBox first, then we automate the device configuration as required onto other systems. It completely replaces the IP address spreadsheet. NetBox works best if you think of it that way. NetBox also allows you to integrate network inventory with configuration automation systems like Ansible and Salt. It's not great for managing things without IP addresses like keyboards, mice, displays, etc. But I sus suspect a lot of networks like ours, nearly everything that matters in our team has an IP address of some sort. You can learn more and he links to the GitHub page with Netbox. If you use this on the air, please don't use my full name. 
So we'll just call him Kevin, but we'll have the link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. You can check out Netbox, and I appreciate you sending that in. Uh, Mario writes in and says, hello, Noah. I heard you were looking for ITSM open source management software. That includes asset management. My go-to, GLPI. It's open source. It's multi-tenant. ITSM software, which includes ticketing system, problem management, change management, knowledge management, hardware, licensing, contracts, budget, project management, and more. It's very powerful and very stable, and I highly recommend it. The company behind it offers paid support services and a cloud-based version for those that do not want to self-host or don't have the resources to install it on their own. There's also a 45-day free demo available for those that want to have a quick look. You can check out at the address below. If you have any further questions, please reply to my email. Any links to the glpi-project.org, of course, again, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. So it's interesting because I've, other than uh, Snipe IT, I've not used a lot of open source inventory management system, and so I'm just I'm not real familiar with it. So it's exciting and encouraging to hear from those of you who have been using that, and a huge thank you for reaching out and sharing that with us because that allows us to get that information back out to the users who are asking about it. Again, if you have a question, we take your phone calls live on the air. You can call us at 855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. You're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. Hey, Noah. Hey, Katana. How are we doing? Hey, good, good. How are you doing? Excellent. I just got a question for you. I want to know if you had any experience uh, with uh, Raspberry Pi and those Hi-Fi audio hats. Okay. Okay. Like uh, 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 Allo or Hi-Fi Berry. Um, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to build a, a streamer for my mom. Uh, my dad was a real big, huge uh, audio Hi-Fi guy, and he passed away now. But uh, he had over like 300. Uh, CDs and things that I'm flacking, and I want to make it easy easy for her to listen to over the network. Because uh, right now she has problems putting the CDs in because he had an old he had like a transport CD player and all this sort of high end gear. So uh, I just want to know if you had any experience with those Raspberry Pi uh, sort of audio uh, hats, and uh, if you could make any recommendations uh, in that regard. Yeah, you bet. So I've got a, I've got experience with a couple of different ones. So I have experience with the Hi-Fi Berry, which is essentially a audio amplifier that you mount onto the Raspberry Pi. So the use case here is you mount the the Hi-Fi Berry onto the Raspberry Pi. You provide it with 12 volt power. It has its own little uh, barrel connector, and then you're able to plug speakers directly into this. So the the the, the problem ordinarily is you don't have uh, any amplification coming out of the Raspberry Pi. So you have the little 3.5 millimeter uh, headphone jack, but if you don't plug that into an external amplifier, you can't connect it to, to speakers unless they're powered speakers. So the Hi-Fi Berry Amp 2 allows you to amplify the signal before sending it out, and you can plug speakers directly in. So we pair that oftentimes with a music project called Volumio. And the nice thing about Volumio is it's a completely web-based system, so you just flash it onto the Pi, you attach the Hi-Fi Berry to it, and then you're able to plug speakers directly into the Raspberry Pi, and you log into the Volumio web interface. There's actually no authentications. You don't log in. But you load the, the Volumio web interface. You point it towards a NAS, or you drop files on it, or you give it a stream URL, and music magically comes out the speaker. So it's a really great straightforward solution 
uh, to go that way. The other thing that I have had experience with is, and I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but I purchased it off of Adafruit, and it is a uh, it's an audio interface that essentially gives you. Uh, the same thing that you would get with the headphone jack out, but it's on a separate DAC. So it has its own uh, little processor on top of it, um, and it's supposed to give you a slightly cleaner uh, output. Now, I will tell you, I didn't really notice much of a difference. And if I was to do it, in fact, the Volumio system that I have at my house, I didn't use that half the second time. I used a, a Behringer USB audio interface. It was cheaper. It sounded better, and it gave me optical out. Uh, and all three of those things were more beneficial than the little hat that I had. And I, I can't even remember the name of the one, but I didn't particularly care for it. So I'll have a link for you um, to the Hatberry in the show notes, and I'll have a link for you to that Behringer device if they still make it. I'm not sure that they do. Okay, yeah, that's great. One follow-up question, actually. Would, though, would that amp from Hi-Fi Berry, or I know there's some from Allo, would that have enough power to drive um, – like a fire, there's, it's like it's a pair of like totem speakers. Like, would that have enough power to drive those, or or do I'm looking at something else? So, the answer to that question is it, it the your you can you'll get sound out of any speaker. So it's a sixty watt amplifier, and so you'll get sixty watts at at, uh, at eight ohms. So you'll get uh, sound off of, out of any speaker. However, the ideally. If you have, let's say you have a speaker that's 100 watts, ideally you want to drive it with a 200 watt amplifier. Now, you don't want to turn the amplifier all the way up or you'll blow the speaker, but you want to have available more power in the amplifier than the speaker can handle. The reason that you want to do that, because otherwise the amplifier itself will begin to clip. You'll run out of power and the audio won't sound good. And so if you have, um, so we, most of our professional installations, we use poke speakers. And so... There, I think they're 100 watts, and so you do a pair, and so 200 watts, and so we'll put a 400 watt amp in, and we'll use a pair of uh, of uh, of 100 watt speakers, so you get a total of 200 watts, and now we have more than enough headroom in that amplifier to drive those speakers, and they sound much much better when they're driven hot. Um, so to answer your question, it's a 60 watt amp. It depends on how uh, how how what your speakers are rated for. If they're rated for less than 60 watts, this is going to sound great. If it's they're rated for more than 60 watts, it's going to sound good, but once you get to that 60-watt threshold, the amplifier itself is going to start clipping as you're going to run out of power. And so if you want, what I would tell you, the way I would make that decision, uh, Kutana, is that I would say if you're looking for simplicity and you want it to be easy for her to just plug the thing in and run, that's where the Hi-Fi Berry comes in and, and is super beneficial because there are no cables. Uh, you're just plugging the speakers directly into the Raspberry Pi. Where I think it will greatly benefit you to not use the hat and to go with something like the the uh, the Behringer UCA202 is if you want to run that to a external amplifier sorts. And so if you have, if you're da if you're if you already have an amplifier, like you have a Yamaha uh, Hi-Fi amplifier, or if you're purchasing something, um, you could use just the the Behringer to connect the audio interface from the Volumi or Raspberry Pi, whatever you want to run on it, to your external amplifier, and then from there drive the speakers. Now that's going to give you a better sound, but there's also it's there's more complexity. And also, when she wants to use it, she's going to have to turn on the amplifier 
and she's going to have to log into or or somehow access the Raspberry Pi to to drive the music. Does that answer your question? Does that answer your question? Yeah, I got you. That, those are uh, some really good insights. I'm going to sort of mess around with it. Uh, I'm going to place a couple orders and see uh, how, where I can go with it. Thanks a lot, Noah. Yeah, you bet. If that doesn't if that doesn't work out for you or you run into any trouble, you give me a call back. I'm happy to help. It's 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. That is the number to join us. So you can join us via phone. You can join us via email at live at asknoahshow.com. Or you can take advantage of our questions bot. That's a bot that exists in our chat room 24-7-365 and watches like a hawk for your problems, spits them out in front of my face, and Steve and I will answer them um, at the next available opportunity. So Sunjam did exactly that. He offered a piece of feedback. He wrote into the questions about questions called linuxdelta.com and said, try out homelabos.com. It will direct, it will layer directly over Ubuntu or Debian, and it helps you maintain containers in such in a friendly, Ansible config. Extremely flexible and very awesome community. Steve, have you heard of... Ha- HomeLabOS. I have heard of it. Uh, I haven't actually used it just because I'm kind of set in my ways for the things that I do. I'm kind of the same way as I, uh, I don't really want to obfuscate any further than I'm already at. In fact, if anything, I want to dig deeper and understand more. But looking at their screenshots, this is pretty cool. Um, so we'll have a link for you in the show notes again, podcast.asknoahshow.com. This is in response to our episode talking about where to get started with hosting things at home. And so if you didn't have something else to get started with, this might be something to to take a look at. DJ also wrote into the questions, but he says more of a comment than a question, but just a quick thanks to Noah and Steve and the community for the discussions and answers to my SSH DPI question in episode 260. Good old, bad old OpenVPN turned out to be a workable solution in a pinch. But even more, just getting a straight answer. I really enjoyed the discussion and background that you all brought into the focus. That's what sets ANS apart from all other simple Q&A venues. I look forward to experimenting even more with the many possible solutions and knowing the strengths and weaknesses of each. Keep up the awesome show and the community with Technology Deep Dives. Thanks. And we appreciate that feedback. Hey, our pick of the week this week, it's DocEye. This is an app to manage Dockers from a GUI perspective. So there is a part of when, when I went and took my Red Hat uh, sort of Red Hat CSA exam years ago, uh, my instructor was this was this was this guy who every time I would ask him a question, go, go grab a man page. That was his answer to everything. Go grab a man page. And I, and and so. Uh, consequently, I became very comfortable with getting into the CLI and just doing whatever it was I needed to get done. And that has more or less served me well because most of the servers we manage don't have UIs on them. That said, there is something to be said about exploring technology with graphics and the ability to click on something to see what happens. And DocEye allows you to do this with Docker. So there is a Docker desktop app for Mac OS and Windows, but it it somewhat lacks in functionality when it comes to QOL features as well as more advanced power user features on metadata. It's also missing a Linux version. So DocEye currently implements uh, deleting, pausing, starting, and inspecting containers, displaying logs of containers, CPU memory, network disk usage, and stats with graphs, deleting, pulling, exporting, or inspecting images, or browsing image history, and digests. You can check out a video presentation with the currently implemented features. They have it up on GitHub. And of course, we'll have a link for you 
at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Uh, Sleuth in the chat room says it's very good. Uh, Poitainer is also another very good option, and you might want to check that out. I think we've talked about that before. Um, but both of those are great options if you're trying to get into managing Dockers with UI. Our gadget of the week this week. I have to do some setup here. So I have the original GPD Pocket, and it 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 arrived, and I had a meeting that night, and I took it out with me to the meeting and did the operating system installation while I was at my meeting and left there with a Linux computer in my pocket. And to be honest with you, that was pretty powerful because what I tell people is it's the laptop I have when it's socially unacceptable to have a laptop. It has not left my physical possession since the time I installed the operating system. And I cannot begin to describe how much I love having a full-blown Linux PC in my back pocket at all times. Now, you're, you'll either love or you won't like it because it depends on what you do for a living. For me, these kinds of tools make my life tolerable. When, I have to, when I'm sitting at my kid's choir concert or band concert or a conference or something like that, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, some c- catastrophic incident occurs – the ability to have a real keyboard that I can communicate with my team and say, hey, let's do this, let's try this, launch Remina and get remoted into a machine, launch an SSH session, have my YubiKey in the machine and be able to authenticate and do all of those things right from my pocket, I can't even begin to put a price tag or a value on that. My job simply requires me to have a laptop and to have access to a laptop in the internet at all times. And the GPD Pocket fits that bill in spades. And so if I get to a place, and if you've been around me, spend any time with me in person, you'll figure out pretty quickly. I don't go into a restaurant without my backpack, without my laptop. I, I typically won't go into a gas station without have my laptop. If something happens, I just want to know that it's right next to me. And that provides for all sorts of uh, social dilemmas because people just think it's weird to carry a laptop with you everywhere. And nobody thinks twice about carrying a phone. And the nice thing about the GPD Pocket is it's literally just a fraction larger than most people's smartphones, especially the people that carry phablets. And so having that with me has, and this is not in over-exaggeration by any stretch of the imagination, it has literally changed my life. And so what the things that I like about GPD, yes, they're a Chinese company, and typically I would classify that stuff as as Chinese garbage, but this is a very well-built device, a very well-built device, and they didn't cut corners. Typically, when you're looking at smaller form factor computers, it's low screen resolution, it's a crappy processor, it's low on RAM, it's low on storage, low on battery, and it has some stupid proprietary connector to charge it. Not so with the GPD. You get a 1080p display. You get a really decent battery life. The uh, TrackPoint mouse is absolutely fantastic on the original one. They have since gone to an optical one on the GPD Pocket 2, get to the GPD Pocket 3, and the charger is a Type-C connector, which also su- supports DisplayPort. So if you think about what that means for a second, I have a computer that's barely 7 inches large, fits in my back pocket or my cargo pocket, and I can pull that thing out, plug it into a USB hub, and in a matter of seconds, I have a 24-inch monitor with a full keyboard and a full mouse, and I'm using a full-blown desktop that fit in my pocket. And I cannot begin to describe the way that that has changed my life. And you pair that with applications like Super Productivity, I find it very difficult to stay on task often. And and having something, a piece of software that pops up and says, hey, do this thing, 
that's really helpful to me. And then the other side of that is when people sideline me and anybody who's worked in IT for five minutes will understand what I'm talking about here. You're walking down the hallway. Hey, I have a problem with my uh, with with this computer. Could, would you fix this printer? Or would you fix this Wi-Fi? Or could you get the pa-? well, I'm not going to remember that. I'm not going to remember that. But if I can pull a computer out of my pocket and throw it into super productivity or throw it into a ticket and make a reminder, now I have a task that I can go back and address and work on. And so that tool has just been fantastic. Now, I've mostly kept that device offline, and so it's just kind of come my, my little safe haven of organizing my electronic brain. Well, GPD has done it again. They've launched the GPD Pocket 3, a modular full-sized handheld PC. And in looking at this thing, you can tell that they designed this for people that work in IT. It is it is it was designed from the ground up for people that work in IT. So the killer feature of this is the modular IO ports. So the GPD Pocket has a uh 3.5 millimeter jack, obviously charges with type C, obviously has USB on it, has a has a better keyboard than the original GPD or even the GPD Pocket 2. The mouse, they've gone to an actual trackpad on the right-hand side, and the buttons both left, middle, and right-click on the right-hand side, so you can use it in a two-handed fashion and works absolutely fantastic. Now, the thing that sets this thing apart are these modular ports. So the, on the back, there are two screws. Take the two screws, and there is an open module. The modules that are available are a serial module, which, and again, some of you are going to say... Big whoop. What do I need serial for? Well, if you're a person that works in IT and you're going into Cisco Catalyst switches and consoling in all the time, a serial port can save your butt. If you work in some sort of specialty industry where you have proprietary equipment and it still communicates on RS-232, a serial bu- port is going to save your bacon. And finding a computer that's made in 2021 that has that functionality is almost unheard of. And the GPD Pocket does. And it's a well-built device. You can exchange that serial module for USB module. If you need an extra USB port, that's really handy. Now, here's the killer feature, the KVM module. The KVM module has an HDMI input and a USB-C output. So the way that that works in practice is you plug a Type-C cable in and plug it into the dead server that the client calls you about and says, hey, the server doesn't turn on and I don't know what to do. Well, get the crash card. We don't have a crash card. Okay. send You know what? Don't send John back to the office to go get the crash card. Let me pull this thing out of my pocket and I'm just going to plug it into the HDMI port and I'm going to plug the Type-C cable into a USB slot and Bob's your uncle. The GPD pocket becomes the keyboard. The screen becomes the screen of the server and you're able to remotely or you're able to locally control this device with this thing in your pocket. Now, the price is a little steep. It starts at a thousand bucks. If depending on how you configure it, it goes up to thirteen hundred. But there is nothing else like this on the market. Yes, there are remote KVMs. Yes, there are KVM switches. But this thing is just slightly bigger than the GPD Pocket One, GPD Pocket Two, and in my opinion, is an IT sysadmin's dream. So now, Steve, you work in an environment where you're you're mostly able to work either off of your laptop or these days you're working out of your house. So I imagine you don't get into a whole lot of situations where you're like, I need a computer and I don't have one on me. But what do you think about devices like this? Is this something that you look at and say, man, that would be a, that would be a dream tool or is it meh? I think that it would be really neat. I looked at this when, uh, well, a couple of days ago and I thought that'd be really neat. And then I saw the sticker price and I was like, hmm, 
not sure about that. But um, one of the things I definitely could see being handy is what you didn't mention is it comes with a stylist. And I don't know why this isn't an interesting thing for you. But for me, uh, for something like this, I would much rather be writing something like scribbling notes than attempting to peck away at such a tiny keyboard for it. Like the, the keyboard is is okay, but it, it's definitely a thumb a thumb keyboard. So if I was hmm. actually trying to do something with it, I would be using that stylus all the time. And I see the uh, the version with the stylus, just the GPD pocket and the stylus is only six hundred and fifty bucks. And so that's that's a little closer to like hmm, you know maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. I I guess what it would come down for me is how accurate the stylus is. In in my experience, anytime I've tried to use a stylus with an electronic device, what I find is I have to write so large to get it to get the clarity that I desire that I end up taking, you know, five pages to write what I could have written down on a, on a notepad in in half a page or something like that. And so if the stylus is very accurate and it's a high DPI, I could definitely see that working. It says it's got uh, 40, 96 levels of, of pressure. So yeah. I assume that's that's fairly high. I've actually, on a side note, I've been really happy with my XP pen for, for this uh, kind of reason. I hook it up to my desktop and I use it all the time with clients when I'm scribbling notes or, or whatever, doing presentations. So um, I've really warmed up to having a stylus that, that works pretty well. Now, do you take your notes on the computer or do you, you, you write them down on, on like a notepad? Normally, I write them down on a notepad. However, because of the size of this thing, I could absolutely see myself taking it out, scribbling some note that I wanted to remember. Like, I don't know how many times it is where I'm out walking and I'm like, I need to remember to go back to this chapter of this audiobook that I'm listening to. And then I never do because I have nowhere to take that note down. Yeah, it's my life, basically. Uh, You get about 30 seconds to a minute with me and then it's my goldfish brain has dismissed whatever it is you told me. So uh, let me ask you this is, uh, well, anyway, people can check it out if they want to check it out. um, It's the GPD pocket three. It's a Kickstarter right now. We'll have the link for you in the show notes at podcast.asnoahshow.com modular IO ports, 16 gigs of Ram, one terabyte of disk space. It supports a serial port. It supports the KVM module. You can swap that out with the USB module base price is a thousand bucks. They, you can, you can spec it up to the 1300 if you need. Um, but, but check it out. And if, if you're one of the, People that need this, I strongly suspect uh, this this will make your day. In the news this week, Amazon Linux 3 is to be based off of Fedora Community Linux. So Amazon Web Service released an early version of its upcoming distro, Amazon Linux 3, which is based off of Red Hat's Community Linux Fedora. Now, with Fedora as an upstream, the new Amazon distro, AL2022, is extremely stable after extensive package stability testing and contains all of the available security updates. In addition, it's optimized for Amazon EC2 and integrates seamlessly with the latest AWS features and many AWS-specific tools. So as far as a general security is concerned, AL2022 is enabled with SE Linux, and this is going to be enforced by default. So if you're not familiar with SE Linux, SE Linux restricts everything unless it's explicitly permitted. And again, just kind of a side note, if you've not played with SE Linux before, please do not turn SE Linux off. Turn it into permissive mode if you'd like and go into the log and see what would have been blocked. But please don't disable SE Linux because if you do, you'll never learn 
how it works, why it works, and you forego the incredible protection that comes with SE Linux. Now, AL22 is available in preview in all commercial regions and can be launched from the AWS Management Council, AWS Command Line Interface, AWS Tools for Windows, PowerShell, or Run Instances in AWS CloudFormation Template. So the things that I think that are of note here are the following. So companies are getting hip to community-driven projects, and they're starting to make their way into very large commercial spaces, and I see this as a very good thing. So companies for a long time functioned on, quote-unquote, tried-and-true systems, and this is primarily the way that I have tried to view uh, software deployments and what I've recommended to clients. But if you look at what Valve is doing with their Steam Link and basing it off of Arch, I believe a big part of that is kind of what Steve was talking about earlier in the show, is there is so much community effort focused on these things that stuff just works. And when something doesn't work, there's somebody there that cares about it enough to go and fix it. Whereas when you're using the quote-unquote stable tried-and-true method, uh, it may exist, but you have to find somebody or realistically you have to pay somebody to go fix all of these esoteric issues. And if you open it up to the wider community, the community will do that work for you. And so this very much mirrors that same thing. And you can start to see where the increased value on products like Fedora are. They start to market it as a workstation and a server platform. And all of a sudden, places like Amazon look over and say, well, heck, why wouldn't we use that? It's available. It's free. The community is is working on it. It has a fast development cycle. So when there's a problem, problems are fixed fairly frequently and it starts to get traction. Now, what that where that's going to take us, I think, long term is as projects like this gain traction, companies are going to come out and say, OK, well, we want to support things on AWS. Well, we want to support all of the various different supported configuration deployments. So Fedora is going to be one of those things. And as companies come in and say, hey, we support you deploying this thing on Fedora. We support you testing this thing on Fedora. That's going to drive more traction back to Fedora and people saying, well, I guess I better make sure that my software works on Fedora. And all the boats are going to rise. So congratulations to Amazon uh, for launching Fedora or uh, Amazon Linux based on Fedora. Open source virtual assistants. This is something new. Uh, we have things like Mycroft, and obviously everybody is familiar with the Amazon Alexas and, and Google Home Assistants of the world, but open source and privacy-respecting virtual assistants are something new. So Stanford University's Open Virtual Assistant Lab, Oval, has rebranded its Almond Assistant as Genie. So this is an open source virtual assistant, which name now matches the conversational tech underlying the platform since it launched in 2018. So Genie and Almond were designed as an alternative to Alexa and Google Assistant and, you know, the series and other common voice assistants. The Sanford Computer si uh, Systems designer, Dr. Monica Lamb, set up Oval to create a decentralized virtual assistant that stored and shared information based on user preferences. And this is the important part here without mandates from a company. Almond's success led to a discussion of a rebrand with making a commercial product out of this academic experience. And so the group wanted to come up with a word that would be useful regardless of the language spoken. They landed on Genie. So, uh, so there's a couple things of note here. First is there is a crowd sourced repository of skills with over 150 skills, over a thousand IOT devices called thing, thing, Thingpedia, uh, and we'll have a link for you in the show notes. But the idea here is that the community can come up with a design of skills 
And these open source virtual assistants can integrate those skills and utilize them. And so voice assistants built around privacy are something fairly new. And Steve, I know you have a fair amount of experience with Mycroft. In fact, you do a lot of work with that project um, in integrating it into Home Assistant. Yeah, I actually maintain the uh, the Home Assistant skill for Mycroft. Now, that sounds more glorious than it is. It, it more means I just review a bunch of pull requests. I'm not as active uh, contributing code more than that. But I do have some experience with, with um, Almond as well because it is an official add-on for Home Assistant. So if you go into Home Assistant, you you have been able to, for quite a while, just been able to go to the Supervisor tab if you're running that and go to the add-on store, and it's right there. So I have played around with it a little bit, but due to the nature of where I store my Home Assistant, um, that wasn't the optimal plugin for me. So sure. I went with Mycroft where I could kind of distribute them kind of around my living area. I always think it's good to have competition in this space, and I like what Mycroft is doing. I'm excited to see where that goes. I very much am opposed to the Amazon Alexas and Google Assistants of the world, and that seems to get more scary, not less scary. But the idea that you have eyes working on a FOSS implementation of this is extremely exciting. The fact that universities are beginning to look into these things and develop these products is exciting to me because it likely means that it's going to be easier to build custom devices around these things. If you're a company and you say, hey, I want to make a widget and I want my widget system to do this, that and the other. And oh, by the way, we want to add voice control to our widget. Well, you have a couple of options. You could base it around Amazon or Google's implementation of their voice assistant. The problem is you're banking on the fact that Amazon or Google is going to continue to work with you. You're also banking on the fact that people are there, there, it's not going to be a perfectly smooth process because you're going to have – out of the box, the Amazon Alexa is designed to do a thing. And it, so if you're trying to use it in a different deployment scenario, you might want all of the things to come pre-configured. And I had a friend who moved out of a house with some roommates, and the process of trying to split up these cloud-connected devices was grueling because they're all tied to an account, and they're just really not designed to say, hey, so-and-so's taking this and so-and-so's taking that. So as these companies start to evaluate those kinds of problems, I think they're going to look at it and say, well, if we went with – if we went with – with Almond, if we went with Genie, um, we can just design the voice assistant around what we want it to do, and we can perfectly curtail the experience to the user. Um, I'll also throw in a, a mention for Raspi. Have you played with Raspi at all? That one I have not. So if I'm going to talk about Minecraft and we're going to talk about Genie, I'll throw a plug in here for Raspi. I've, I've not either. In fact, today was the first time I've heard of it. But it is those seem to be the three big uh, open source voice assistants that are out there. And so we'll have links for all of them in the show notes. Again, you can find that at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Valve is slowly but surely improving the state of Linux gaming, and they have officially added support for NVIDIA's DLSS machine learning temporal upscaling technique to Proton. So this is the idea here is to bring big FPS boosts and less flicker in games that support uh, the technology. So this is landing in Proton 6.3-8, and it's the first stable release to include support for DLSS. And you're still going to need to set the Proton enable NVAPI equals 1 um, 
And then you'll also have to set dxgi.nvapi hack equals false to enable this feature. And this, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of parallels to be drawn here for what Valve is doing for gaming on Linux and what they're doing with the launch of their Steam link. There's an, a direct link with DLSS because DLSS is specific to NVIDIA. And, of course, the Steam Deck is going to be using AMD-powered uh, devices. And I, I, my understanding is that AMD has something similar, but it's much less capable, and they call it FSR. Either way, it is exciting to me that these companies are continuing to look over at Linux and saying, hey, you know what? That works really well. That does really well. And that's a really exciting piece of technology. We need to participate in that. and We need to be existing over there. And again, much like the Fedora Amazon thing, I think all the boats are going to rise. A quick mention for Libra Reddit. This is a private front end for Reddit. So if you're in the Reddit community, but you don't like the tremendous amount of data that Reddit collects, check out Libra Reddit. Libra Reddit is a private front end like Innovus, but for Reddit, you can browse the coldest takes of unpopular opinion without being tracked. And uh, again, Reddit tracks a lot of data, but Libra uh, Reddit logs nothing. It doesn't use any JavaScript by default, so there's no client-side monitoring even possible. There are 35 various community-hosted instances that you can use to access Libra Reddit, and one can spread their traffic across multiple uh, instances for more privacy. Seven of their instances are .onion services, so you are able to access them via Tor. Now, Libra Reddit doesn't support logins, and so using cookies and a process that they outline, you can subscribe to subreddits, but you're not able to make posts. It's really more for browsing Reddit. You can check out Libra Reddit. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. So, Noah, I thought we'd take a couple of minutes here and uh, share with the audience a little bit of an experience of what it's like to deal with some Red Hat consultants. Now, this isn't going to be salesy, but it's more along the idea. I get a lot of questions about what I do and, and how I do it and how do I interact with clients. So as a little bit of background, uh, I'm a Red Hat architect. And what that means is I often have to go and talk to the client ahead of time before projects start in order to get a good sense of, what we're actually trying to achieve because most of the time we end up with some hazy ideas or some really overall general statements like I want to modernize my app and part of my job is to come in and narrow down that focus so that the people that actually go and do the hands-on work have a clear direction. So I thought we would chat a little bit in that style about containers. And specifically, I understand that you are looking to containerize some workloads over at AltaSpeed. Maybe you can tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So the, the, the basic idea here is we're laying plans for 2022. And Steve, if like half of them work out, I would be thrilled. But part of the plan is to move into our own data center and have high availability for our servers. We're going to virtualize with Overt. And my thought is to start using containers to host the individual services. We're going to start with web servers, um, but we'll probably move on to other things. So I guess my first question to you, Steve, am I going down the right track? Are containers the right choice for hosting, I would say, 50 to 60 websites? So usually before we get down into that, we call that kind of solutioning, we back up and say, okay, well, I heard you say that you wanted to have HAs 
high availability. Um, and you mentioned a data center, but you didn't mention data centers plural. So do you have multiple data centers that you're working with? Nope. It will be one data center. And so we'll have a, we'll have a backup system at our office, which is not, you know, data center E because we don't have multiple connections and all of that. So we'll have one data center proper with three redundant internet connections, two separate power uh, connections, uh, both backed up by two separate generators, an A side and a B side. And then as a complete offsite, uh, failover will have our office system. And so how does the how does the failover or how do you predict the failover to be working between a data center and your office? Well, uh, I haven't gotten that far yet. Um, I would I would suspect that we would do something along the lines of we have public IPs that are given to us by our ISP for our office. So I, I would assume that we would assign one of those to uh, an overt node, and then we'd have the other, the, the main overt stuff running in the data center. Um, but again, this is where you could tell me, hey, maybe you don't want to do it that way. Maybe there's a maybe there's a better way to accomplish that. So the next question that that comes up before we get into a little bit of solutioning is around: Do you have any service level agreements for uptime and things of that nature? We do. We so it's a business plan at our office, and then obviously the data center has their their own SLA. So uh, we have agreements in both places. So if you have an SLA, then um, it is a good idea to start thinking about the failover when you're in a single data center, a single data center scenario. The reason why I'm kind of hitting this is because oftentimes um, we get caught up in this idea of implementing a technology, but we completely are missing the boat when it comes to the business drivers. And if the business driver for this is uh, high availability, but we're only really supported by one data center and then mm. some failover that, that that process is going to eat into your SLA, then the question of having all this fancy redundancy inside of your data center might be an over-engineering feat that adds complexity and may increase your downtime as opposed to actually helping you out. Okay, so let me ask you this. If so, our, if, if I have one data center, and I, it, so it's one physical building, so that's obviously a strike against it, but inside of said physical building, we have two entirely redundant power uh, sources coming in, and we have three entirely redundant internet sources coming in, if I have two physical hosts, is there an advantage of setting high availability up between those two hosts? So if host A goes down, we go to host B, the assumption, the presumption being that all three internet sources to one building wouldn't get taken out at one time, both sides of the power uh, redundancy wouldn't get taken out at the same time. So there absolutely is... Uh a case to be made for for high availability. Now we're kind of running low on time, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna wrap this up and say that you know if if people are interested in kind of getting an experience for the type of work that I do in terms of helping people get to a solution, please let us know. Um, you know I thought I'd throw this out there and see if people are interested in that. But to get back to your point, when you're talking about service level agreements. Every nine that you add to your agreement, so 99%, 99.9%, and so on, adds 10x of cost, complexity, and um, just overall difficulty. So okay. uh, um, that's where some of this comes in, right? Because how much is you have to end up balancing out how much cost is 
involved in breaching the SLA versus the cost of maintaining like uh, high availability VMs and then high availability high availability containers on top of that and then the network gear on top of that and so on and so forth, right? And and you have to kind of make that balancing determination when someone can literally go in and, you know, dig out in front. And I absolutely have had a client that had this. They had a bunch of redundant connections and, and they were trenching outside the building and cut them all. <laughs> um, it, it absolutely happens, right, where there's some emergency road work that has to happen and all that redundancies out the window. Well, let me let me back up a little bit then, Steve. Let me, let me tell you what my end goal is, and you you help me understand what I need, what what my in between steps are to get there. So here's here's where I'm at. Over time, DigitalOcean has been a fantastic partner for us because I mean, ten years ago, if I would have walked into a client and said, "Hey, this thing failed, and you're going to need to replace the server. You need to to do X, Y, or Z," uh, it would have meant calling Dell or at that time IBM. And ordering a server, and then it would be a few weeks, and eventually it would arrive, and then we would install it and provision it and do all the things, and then they'd have their server. Now, you log into – and it doesn't have to be DigitalOcean. It could be Linode. It could be uh, you know, SixSync or wherever. But the uh, you, you, you spin up servers like nobody's business, and that has been fantastic for flexibility. The problem has gotten to be our DigitalOcean bill is ginormous. To the point that when we were doing our profit and loss statements at the end of the quarter and we started looking at budgeting for 2022, we said, well, how much would it cost to build inside of a data center? That's it. How much would it cost to build inside of a data center and buy all new hardware? That's it. How much would it cost to build inside of a data center and buy new hardware and swap it every five years? That's it. Why aren't we doing this? We would make our money back in a matter of months. And so the goal is to retain the same level of operational uh, stability that I have with a rented VPS, but I want to own that infrastructure. So how do I do that? That is a fantastic question. That's that's the million dollar question. Um, lots of clients find out that the move to the cloud ends up being really expensive and they they contract a lot. But people have to go and experience that for themselves because it's a lot harder to manage your costs in the cloud. So from a from a certain perspective, it's almost better to have a footprint on premise and then burst into the cloud when you need the extra capability and then contract it. Um, so to kind of answer your question, a lot of this depends on what you're actually doing. So why don't you tell me a little bit about what kind of workload you have? Yeah, it's a great question. So to start, we're, we're, we're starting with websites. And the reason for that is, um, to me, I, I don't... It's, it's a business continuity thing for me, Steve. So I have people that are way smarter than me that do a lot of the day to day work. And that's the way I like it. That's, that's, that's why Alta Speed Technologies functions at such a high level is because when you need a developer, we have one that will do a really good job. When you need a system administrator, depending on what your system is, we have one that will do a really good job. When you need an installer to install cameras or whatever it is, we have people that do that. And, and each one of those people hones their own individual space really, really well. My job as the business owner, at the end of the day, the buck stops with me. And so when a client calls and says, my server's down, this camera didn't get installed right, this thing isn't working right, I have to be able to go in there and know with 110% certainty that 
I will be able to solve their problem. And the only way that I can know that I'll be able to go in there and solve their problem is if I understand inside and out the technology that we're using and the implementation process that we're using um, before we start putting it into production. So I give guys um, a tremendous amount of leeway when it, when we're in what we call the sandbox, which is a room that we designed specifically to test either, well, build out client infrastructure, but also to test uh different implementations and different configurations and different deployments. And so they basically have car blanche. Hey, however you think this is best to do, this is how you should do it. You should do it, everything. And then once that's done, part of the sandbox is we've got a large screen and I come into the sandbox and they walk me through it. Here's what we did. Here's how we set it up. Here's how we set it up. Here's why we set it up that way. And so we started with, uh, with websites primarily because we're running them all on Nginx, and I know Nginx like the back of my hand, so it becomes very simple for me to start wrapping my head around if we're going to add a complexity of containers. Okay, that's fine, because I already understand Nginx, so, and I, I have played with containers enough to kind of understand, so now I can kind of get my head wrapped around that. Now we're going to add Ansible to it so that we can add some automation, so the client goes in, they log in, they say, I want to deploy a new website. It just automatically spins up all the things. That's advantageous. But again, there's a layer of complexity that I need to wrap my hand or head around. And so if we were doing it with technology that was more complex than just a web server, I would be learning in production, mind you, all of these technologies all at one time. So I've played with a lot of this stuff, but I've not used it day in and day out in production like I have a lot of the other stuff. And so we're going to start with websites. But the long-term plan is to move basically everything we have at DigitalOcean over to the site. And that includes things like a cloud-hosted NVR, where we host uh, camera systems for people that don't want to buy their own camera system. They just want to pay us 15 bucks a month. We send them the camera. It's an encrypted feed from the camera back to the, in the, I guess it'll be the data center at this point. And then they log in and they're able to see their camera feeds. And the way that we do it, the, the advantage of that over like a Nest or, a, or a, a, a drop cam or something like that is when you get to the point that you say, hey, over five years, I've bought 35 cameras from you. I don't want to pay this subscription fee anymore. No problem, boss. You pay us X amount of dollars and we'll sell you an NVR and we'll just repoint all your cameras. And then it's all on premise and on your site. Um, but for any of that to work, we have to first have the soft landing spot so that we can compete with these cloud providers. And I've said this on the show before, and I'll repeat it here. I spend a certain portion of my week thinking about how it is we are going to skate to where the puck is going to be. What is technology going to be used doing five years from now, 10 years from now? And the path that I see pretty clearly laid out in front of me is a person wants to start a business. They go into their cell phone provider and say, I need internet or I need a device. And the cell phone provider says, okay, here's a tablet and it has internet. And so they buy the tablet and internet and they connect it to, you know, a square POS and they go over to their business and they open up and they have a, a subscription service for their, their, their accounting. They have a subscription service for their POS and they just start running a business like that. And, to a certain degree, that cuts out a lot of what we do for businesses because we build that network infrastructure and we maintain it for them. And so if they go to completely subscription-based uh, things, there isn't a lot of room for us to do work and serve those clients. So I have to ask myself as a value-driven uh, technology company, what is our next step? Well, our next step is to make sure that there is a privacy self-hosted option available for these clients, but it has to be just as good as the regular subscription service that they sign up to. And so the, to me, the, the big picture way that we get there is we wrap our heads around doing all of the backend hosting. Now, the good part about that is 
all of these major cloud services, they're all using containers in Linux. That's how they're doing it. That's how they get that reliability. So I want to take that portion of what they're doing. I want to do it with open source software, and I want to then price it appropriately, and I want to be able to offer that uh, with the same reliability, with the same consistency that they would get if they signed up for you know one of the big-name providers. Um, and so my, so far as I see it, and you tell me where I'm wrong here, our first step is to start with something that is easy and manageable like websites, and then we can get to the more complicated LAM stacks. Then we can get to the more complicated, uh, you know, and, you know, video hosting. All of that requires doing bandwidth calculations and stuff like that. Um, so there's, there's, there's additional complexity there. But right now, uh, the process that I'm at is, are containers right for this kind of thing? So there's a lot to unpack there. I guess the, the, the answer to your question directly is, yeah, this is what can, containers are meant to help with. But from a, an architecture and a project planning point of view, you're looking to do several major moves at the same time, which is a recipe for disaster. Mm. Not only are you trying to move out of the cloud, you're trying to learn how to deal with the networking and let's, let's use the term global load balancing mm-hmm. between your data center and your office, mm-hmm. and you're trying to adopt new technology at the same time. Yes. This really should be two different projects where you migrate out of DigitalOcean into something that might be container-like. So, for example, you know, you probably have enough capacity to be able to spin up VMs to handle this so that you're splitting out the... Um, the, the work from virtual hosts into individual VMs. Mm. And the reason why I would say that is because for your migration path, you're sticking with something that you know while you're laying the path for something else. Yeah. So by you're not going to split out, you're not going to have all of these things hosted in a single container. They're going to be in multiple containers. So instead of trying to figure out how do I split all this out and how do I do the networking for this and, oh, by the way, they're in containers and how do I make sure that I secure these all in one swoop, you do you move into VMs where you've split out the VMs and you learn how to do the networking because the networking is simpler for handle, like shoving traffic at a specific VM than it is to try and work with, with containers as a general rule. So you kind of split that out. You, you're learning how do I do the networking for things that are now kind of dispersed over my new infrastructure and I've migrated out of the cloud and I'm dealing with some sort of global uh, load balancing or some, some way to ingest that traffic, but you're also keeping the underlying technology something that your guys are familiar with. And that will, that will be a, a good first step. And then the second step is let's start putting one of these things on a container and then two and then three and then when you get a few of them, maybe then you start looking at doing container or- orchestration or something similar, right? This is a, a staged approach from a business-critical standpoint. You're moving all kinds of stuff that you have SLAs on. Let's not throw in too many variables because where did it break? Mm, that's that's excellent advice. So, uh, you t- so what I'm he- I, I like what you're saying, and and really you're approaching it from the other side. So I was starting with, well, let me get comfortable with the technology exactly the way that I would want it, and then add the production stuff into it, and say, okay, now we're ready to to land this in a nice soft spot. What I'm hearing from you is, go ahead and start with the production stuff, but start with the production stuff on something you know 
will work well. And interestingly enough, your VM suggestion appeals greatly to me because we manage this for clients all the time. And indeed, we have a virtual host at our office that runs all sorts of services. So just picking that up and moving that into a data center, giving it a public IP at a much bigger pipe and redundant power is a much is a is a trivial thing, actually, really, to wrap my head around um, and then add the complexity down the road is what I'm hearing. Yeah, and the reason for this is because it's not like you can't mess around with containers in the back end, but you're really talking about two different projects. You're talking about a migration from one platform to another, regardless of what that is. Mm -hmm. And then you're talking about what we would call a modernization project. And you really shouldn't try and do both at the same time unless you've got a lot of manpower and a lot of expertise that you might be able to draw on. It is possible, but, you know, it's, it's risky. No, it's it's actually not something I have the manpower. In fact, one of the questions that came up in our, in our in our exploration meetings when we first started talking about this is we asked the question, um, is this really what we want to do? Like, do are we an IT company that serves other people? Should we be trying to manage all of this stuff ourselves or do we want to get into this? But, you know, again, kind of referencing back what I was talking about, going to where the puck is going to be, it appears to me that what customers are going to want five, 10 years down the road is going to be to be provided something like, hey, we have a platform, you sign up for it, you get on cloud, you get element, you get C file, you get all of the things that you'd get with Dropbox and 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 uh, and G Suite and uh, Slack, but it's open source, you can self host it if you like. And these guys are willing to work with you because they want to come alongside you and help you understand your technology. They're not trying to take it away and trying to enslave you into another company. Um, and so long term, it seems to me like containers are, 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 are where to eventually get to. So I really like that. So, Steve, we want to continue this discussion. And so what we're doing is we're going to ask you if this sounds interesting to you and you say, hey, I, too, would like to learn more about high availability, about containers, about Kubernetes, about clusters, about OKD, about Overt. Send us your questions. Send us your thoughts. Send us your reflections at live at com. You can also Send it in via the bot questions, colon, Linux, Delta.com. And we're going to do a full episode on this on December 21st. And so if we're going to take your feedback ahead of time, if there's anything that you say, hey, that's super interesting. I really want to know more about this, that, or the other. You can do that. Now, on December 9th, we're going to be doing a special event. It's the Speed Technologies Roundtable. And over the years, I have been asked countless times, what's the origin story of Speed?" And I've briefed over parts of it at times. But how did you get started? Why do you do what you do? How did you get to where you are? How could I flat out rip that off? How, how do I do that? And so we're going to do that. I've invited my team at AltaSpeed. I've said, come on, let's sit down and let's talk about how we serve clients and why we serve clients and why we're grateful for the opportunity to be servants. Um, and so we're going to be recording that on Thursday, uh, December 7th. It'll be at 6 p.m. Central. You can, well, or, excuse me, I'm sorry, Thursday, December 9th. It'll be recorded Thursday, December 9th at 6 p.m. Central at AskNoahShow.com. Uh, it'll be released as a special episode. Um, we're not going to be confined to the our, our normal radio hour. So if you if, if it runs long, that's fine. We would love to hear your questions. We'd love to hear your comments. You're welcome to join us live uh, for the show and we'll have the entire team here and it's and it's going to be fun. 
Um, and we're just, we're going to talk about the story. We're going to, I don't know how much of our plans uh, of 2022 we're going to get into, but it's going to be an exciting episode. So December 21st, the uh, Kubernetes and containers. If you want to hear more about this, please help us guide the discussion. The show exists to serve you, the community. So the more that you can help me understand what it is that we can do to serve you and how we can guide that discussion, the better that will be. And then December 9th, the Ultra Speed Technologies uh, origin story that will be streamed at asknoahshow.com. I'd also invite you to check out Open Source Voices, a new episode with Richard Brown. Uh, if we're talking about OpenSUSE, uh, this is the guy that you want to listen to. So he's a Linux distribution engineer at SUSE and a former chair of OpenSUSE, and he joined uh, my producer, JT Pennington, on Open Source Voices. You can learn more at opensourcevoices.org. Latest episode, episode 20. The music in our ears means we are out of time. If you'd like to hear more, you can go to podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find all of the articles and references we used for the show, as well as the entire back catalog. This show is recorded every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at asknoahshow.com. You can follow us on Twitter to get the latest. You can follow the show at asknoahshow. He's at Linux Ovens. I'm at Colonel Linux. We'll see you next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at asknoahshow.com. Have a good week.